For those of you that may not know much about me, I'm a, I'm a history person. I like reading nonfiction. A lot of people like reading fiction. I'm not as much of a fiction person. I like reading nonfiction. And so I'll find myself in these history books, and I'll be reading them and learning so many interesting things, and my wife will come home, and I'll be so excited to tell her all of these different, just fascinating historical facts from thousands of years ago about people that have been long gone, and for some reason, she's not always that interested in hearing those interesting facts. So I get to share them with you today as, uh, as my way of getting them out. I won't, I won't spend too much time on them, but... When one looks through the courses of history, when one examines the ways that people have interacted over the years, there's a lot of differences. A lot of different kinds of musics, a lot of different kinds of values, a lot of different kinds of cultures and languages and locations and and all these sorts of differences, ways that make people unique. There's also, in many ways, a lot of things that happen in history that people all across history have done or have had happen to them at some point. There's some things that are very specific to the human experience regardless of what time you were born in, of where you were born whether you're male or or female, whether you are from a different socioeconomic level, whether you're from a different ethnic group, a different culture, whatever. There's some things that make humans humans. And we could go into a list of all of those things, and there's a lot of positive things from that. There's a lot of different things over the course of history that humans have consistently done or had a pattern of behavior that, that we can look at and we can be optimistic of and say, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing that humans have always done that. Like community. People have always wanted to be in community together. That's not a bad thing. But when we look at it, there's a lot more bad things that connect humans together throughout history than there are good things. There's a lot more bad things that humans just have done throughout history than good things. I was thinking of how to say this or what, how to describe this, but when you think of humans, one of the things, and this is going to be our focus for this morning, one of the things that all humans across all times in history, whether in the United States today whether in England a hundred years ago, whether in Russia hundreds of years ago, whether in some remote tribe in Africa or South America, from the ancient peoples to the modern peoples to the future. One thing that unfortunately connects us together is the making of enemies. Man, we're off to a positive start. One thing, as you look across all of human history, even if you look way back and you see caveman drawings, they're pictures of people with pointy sticks. Every human culture has had a bad guy. And they personify it. Different cultures will have different versions of that. 
And we, we can look back and think of the ways that people have done that. Some people over the last hundreds of years have done that based on the color of your skin. We would look at that and be horrified. Some people have done that based on the specific ethnic group you have, you're in or a country you're in. That doesn't happen anymore today. Some people may look at ideologies, opinions. They believe in that? Oh. Some people use religions. They're a Christian? Oh. They're a Muslim? Oh. They're Jewish? Oh. We all have seen, we, we, we see clear examples of enemizing other peoples. And we can sit here and say, we may have grown from that, but we can't sit here and say that for long. Because we fall prey to that every single day. You and I fall prey to that every single day. The making of an enemy in our head and our thoughts and our attitudes and our movements and the things that we do is incredibly affected by who the bad guy is in your mind. It can dominate you. It can control you. It can motivate you to do something that later you may regret. If this is such a common human experience, then what do we do with it? What do we do with this common human experience? Do we just sit and let it happen and let it control us and take over us? I ask these questions. I ask these questions because the passage we're going to look at today directly addresses this question. And I think that the passage we're looking at today speaks into how you and I interact with these perceptions that we as individuals or we as groups form on who the bad guy is and how we are supposed to interact with that tension. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to do that by going into the book of Mark. No shocker there. Please turn with me to the book of Mark Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 13 through 17 today. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 for today. As many of us know, we've been carrying on through our study in the book of Mark, and we have almost made it to the end of chapter 2. We're getting there. It's going to, we're, we're, we're parked in Mark for a while. And so far what has happened in this book is quite frankly an incredible thing where we've heard this, 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 this uh, announcement, this proclamation of a coming king who is going to come and bring deliverance to his peoples. And then we get a man named Jesus, a humbled man, a man from a backwater town in a backwater province in the corner of one of the biggest empires the world has ever known. This man comes and he, he interacts among the peoples and he begins to teach and say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he doesn't just teach. He doesn't just have words. He has actions. He goes to different people. He meets different people. And he shows an incredible power that he has through healing, through miracles, 
The previous passage we just went through last Sunday, Pastor John took us through the passage of a paralyzed man who was brought down from the ceiling from his friends who, care, who sent him down from on top of a building. Jesus heals him. An incredible miracle. Passages earlier, he showed his power and authority over evil spiritual forces through exercising demonic, or demonic forces, unclean spirits. And you would hear that, and you may hear that and go, this is great. This is incredible. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, not everybody at the time thought so. One of the greatest enemies of Jesus at the time, the Pharisees, one of his, one of his greatest pieces of resistance in his ministry, began to openly criticize his ministry in the previous passage. When Jesus went to the paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees responded, you're speaking blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And they were absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. This passage is the second of three passages in a row where Jesus is in the midst of his ministry and he does something and is openly criticized by the Pharisees. This is the second time of three that that's going to happen. Let's see what happens. The passage begins, Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. Picture, if you will, an inland lake with hills coming up all around the inland lake and these these dark sort of stones underneath. This isn't a lovely sandy beach paradise. This is nothing like Lake Michigan. You know, the lovely sandy beach paradise of Lake Michigan. But this is a, 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 a lake that was put there from, due to a dormant volcano. A lot of the rock in the ground is this dark volcanic rock. And so when they walked around, it was a dark ground. It wasn't bright and white and sandy. It wasn't a tropical paradise. It was, it was the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, continuing his ministry of teaching, and as he's walking, you don't know the time of day, you don't know when it is, you don't know what its relationship is to the previous passage with the paralyzed man, but as he's walking, he sees something coming up. He sees something. That's the enemy, at least to the people of his day. As he's walking, he comes up to something called a tax booth. And in this tax booth, more than likely, was a group of tax collectors. And also, more than likely, a couple of armed guards. You see, the Sea of Galilee had an incredible highway that traveled from the north of it directly to the south. If anybody from north of Judea wanted to get to Jerusalem, they had to go by the Sea of Galilee, and they would have had to go by a tax booth similar to this one. And in this tax booth was, in the people of the day's eyes, the most vile, horrible people you could imagine. The worst of the worst, the most utterly despicable people. Tax collectors. 
What's so, I feel like when we read one of these passages, we, we hear about Jesus' interactions with the tax collectors and the peoples of the day's interaction with tax collectors, and we go, yeah, they didn't like them very much. They weren't really the greatest people or whatever, but we, we kind of breeze over it. We don't stop and think and ask some of the questions because some of them we may know the answers to. But the questions that we must ask and get further understanding of is, why are the tax collectors such evil people? Why are the tax even why are tax collectors the bad guys? Kids, this is on your kids sheet. There are three things that the tax collectors were at the time. Oppressive, corrupt, and outcast. We're going to talk about each of those three in turn. Oppressive, corrupt, and outcast. We'll begin with oppressive. A tax collector was paid by, the, or was under the employment of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the foreign Gentile commanders who came in and conquered the province of Judea and turned it into a Roman province. These were other kingdoms, not Jewish kingdoms, not God-honoring kingdoms who came in and conquered the Jewish peoples and forced them to submit to the Roman rule. Just that makes many of us perhaps shiver in our seats, the thought of being conquered by a foreign power. These tax collectors were employed by the Romans, and their job was simple. Collect enough money to sustain the Roman efforts, the Roman cause. Whenever they were in this area, people would have to go to them and pay an incredible amount of money, oftentimes more of the money than they had. And this money would be sent off to government projects. Roman roads is a very common expression. All roads lead to Rome, and they were paid for by the conquered peoples. The Romans were known for an incredible military strength and those military productions and armor and people and, 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 and weaponry had to be paid for by something. They were paid for by the taxes of the conquered people. Imagine being conquered by an enemy force and being told you have to pay for that enemy force to go conquer other people. I would not be happy with that. Not just that, but these for these this this money would not just go to the military, it wouldn't just go to roads, it would go to public building projects. Roman amphitheaters were paid for somehow, right? Roman temples were paid for somehow, right? Many of these were government projects. And so the government needed that money, and how did they do it? They taxed the peoples. And so imagine yourself as a Jew being conquered by an ungodly government. Your grandparents might have been killed by their soldiers when they conquered you a couple generations ago. And you have to pay them money. Not just money, but money for them to go send their military to go kill someone else's grandparents. And also money for them to go build temples to worship pagan gods that you don't even believe in. They were oppressive. That's the first point. The second point is corrupt. The tax collectors, though, employed by the Roman government, they never actually got any of the money of the, uh, that they collected. 
They never got any of the money that they got from, that they collected from different peoples. They had to get a means of living, right? You need food on the table. You need a place to live. You need clothes on your back. Well, how did they get money? The Romans never told them what the max amount of money they could tax people with. And so as a result, tax collectors would charge incredible amounts of money. More than what the Romans required. More than what they required to live. They would end up more than likely having a fair bit of cash. We can imagine that as Jesus is walking by the tax collector booth, these aren't shaggy, homeless peoples. These aren't peoples that look weird, that smell weird, that dress weird. No, these are people with good clothing. They looked, they would have looked presentable. They had the money to spend on nicer stuff. They might have even smelled good. People didn't smell good back then. They didn't have, perfume was very expensive. They were oppressive, they were corrupt, but they were also outcasts. The Romans would hire local people to tax local people. If you were in Judea, and in this case, your tax collectors were Jewish. And I, um, I, I've seen almost like movies of this as Jesus goes to these tax collectors and he talks to them and they just look all shaggy and they look like hunched over and they, look just, they just look like they're poor or whatever. I, I imagine this person whose name we identify as Levi, being a man who looks on the outside presentable. But as you watch his eyes, as you watch his posture, as you watch his demeanor, he's missing something. He's missing something very important. The Jews thought their fellow Jewish tax collectors were traitors. Not only were they expelled from community, but they just were not trusted. Nobody trusted them. They gave in to the pagan gods and these pagan empires' cause in order to get rich quick. They were banished from their Jewish communities, even to the point that we have actual Jewish sources that say that tax collectors' testimonies in court didn't count a tax collector, if they saw a crime and they went to the courts and said this crime was committed and that was a Jewish court, they would say, we don't believe you. It's boy who cried wolf to an incredibly horrible level. Are you a little mad at the tax collectors right now? I know I would be. No wonder the Jewish people saw them as an enemy. They were a personification, a representation of all that they despised and hated. They saw a tax collector, they thought of the Roman Empire, they thought of being poor, they thought of not being under God's rule. These tax collectors were the enemy for the Jewish peoples. Jesus is walking along the road, along the sea, and he sees a booth of these tax collectors. 
I can imagine it's a fairly busy place. You, ha- you kind of you had to go to one, but you didn't want to. If you were a fisherman, you would have had to go and give a portion of your fish over to them and give them. And if you were traveling from Syria to the north to Jerusalem to the south, you would have had to pay them some money to get through. Jesus. So it's, I'm imagining a hustling and bustling place, a long line of people who don't want to be there, and people at the tax booth who don't look satisfied, though on the outside they seem to have all that they need. I imagine Jesus walking along the road, looking over, picking out one of them, one from the group of tax collectors. This one's name is a Hebrew name. His name was Levi. And Jesus looks at Levi and says, follow me. Now, the last time we've heard Jesus say, follow me, was actually when he was talking to Peter and his brother at, on the Sea of Galilee, the fishermen, and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Those guys, they dropped all they had, they got up, and they followed Jesus. Later on, Jesus looks at the tax collector, the enemy, and says, you, you follow me. The tax collector in this passage drops everything he has, gets up, follows Jesus. What an incredible thing. That the same thing Jesus said to the lowly but faithful Jewish fishermen peasants is the same thing he said to the traitorous outcast. Neither of these people are necessarily righteous in God's eyes, but you, I mean, if you had to pick which one you wanted next to you, who would you pick? Jesus picked them both. Something to note here is that Jesus' follow me wasn't an endorsement of the tax collector's actions. There's another passage, I believe it's in Luke, where a bunch of tax collectors approach Jesus, and Jesus' response to them is to charge people only what is required of them. Don't charge anything extra. Basically telling them don't have a steady income. We don't know what Jesus said exactly about the tax collectors, but we do know that he was not in support of their actions. And so his, his follow me wasn't a sit and keep doing what you're doing, but it's a get up and come and do something better. The first point for us today is that God calls the lowest the enemies that have been determined throughout all of history, perhaps even the enemies that you have determined in your mind have the same opportunity and calling that anybody else has. For there is no partiality with God. I think it's such an interesting, an interesting part of the scriptures where All of human history relates to the tension in this passage. We need to relate to the tension in this passage of God's radical calling of the most horrifying people of his day to his people's eyes. 
But why? Why does he call these tax collectors? Why? Why did he call the tax collectors over anybody else? I think the rest of the passage can give us a bit of a clue. We don't learn much more from this part of the passage. The tax collector gets up and follows Jesus. The next verse immediately cuts to a little bit later, probably later in the day. The tax collector has invited Jesus over for dinner. The tax collector has Jesus in his house. The tax collector has invited his buddies to come and have a meal with this great prophet or guy that's communicating that this kingdom of God is coming near. I'd want to go to that dinner. But this is a crowd of people. When there is no community, people find their own ways to make community. Outcasts often become their own community, do they not? So these tax collectors, and the passage says tax collectors and sinners, this is a general term, are all hanging out, having dinner at Levi's house. Levi also more than likely is um, another name for Matthew, in a similar way that Peter is called Simon or Cephas and Peter, between depending on what context he's in, more than likely Levi, which was a Hebrew name, was called that in a Hebrew context, and Matthew which is a Greek name, would have been called that in a Greek context. Matthew, Levi, we're talking probably about the same guy. And so Matthew or Levi or whatever you want to call him, he, he's having this dinner and he's having these folks there and they must be having a grand old time. They must be enjoying themselves, eating a nice meal. It seems like sitting down with someone over dinner, it's, it's, an, it's a fun thing to do. It's an incredible thing to do. You, wanna, you want people to be excited to come hang out with you? Go make them food. Please join us after the service, by the way. And they're sitting there and they're enjoying it. We don't know exactly what this looks like, but they're not the only ones that are aware of their situation. Somehow, I believe it says that the scribes of the Pharisees, yeah, the scribes of the Pharisees saw what was happening. The Pharisees, being the religious elites of the time, very hardline focused on making sure the entirety of the Old Testament law is followed to a T, an expression of obedience to God. See the tax collectors and, and the sinners. The sinners would be in a general term for those that were unfaithful to the law. These were not righteous people in the eyes of this community. These were not godly people in the eyes of this community. And these Pharisees, they're walking and they see this, this wonderful teacher, this, this, this guy who's talking about bringing salvation to the world, who, who has said that he can forgive sins, is eating with the bad guys. Is hanging out with the bad guys. Is making inside jokes with the bad guys. We don't know exactly what they were talking about, but you can imagine I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees as they're not a part of our brains that kind of understands why they seem to be a little concerned. Does the Psalms not say, blessed is he who stands not in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers or is with the mockers? I can't remember the verse exactly. Preston Edward Version, I don't remember what it says exactly. But do the Proverbs not warn against Bad company producing bad morals? 
Is there not a part of us that can kind of understand their concern, even if we know who Jesus is and know that technically they're supposed to be the bad guys in this passage? Like, we get it. And so they see what Jesus is doing. And we get to the second major criticism of Jesus' ministry. The passage says this exactly. They say, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Why would he do that? Why does he put himself in that place? Do you realize what the Pharisees are doing in this just by that statement? They're creating a stepping stool. And they're stepping onto the stepping stool and saying, why is he eating with sinners? Why would he do that? If you can't hear the irony, you'll hear it in a moment. Jesus is apparently close enough. To, I'm, it's hard to imagine this. It's a house. They're in a building. They might have had some open windows. They might have had an open doorway. Who knows exactly what it looked like? Maybe they're standing outside. Maybe they're kind of all poking their heads out in a row, kind of looking in at the house. I can't imagine how this all looks or what this, but try to put together what this could look like, where they're criticizing Jesus. Jesus hears what they're saying, and he responds. His response, I think, is legendary. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's so much irony in the statement that he's making. It's an incredible statement, one that challenges every single structure that the Pharisees held oh so dear to. And it's one, I think, that we hold dear to, whether we realize it or not. The Pharisees are putting themselves on this pedestal, on this stool, and saying, who are you to hang out with sinners? And Jesus says, I'm not here for the perfect people. They have no need for me. He says, I'm here for the people in need. What benefit is a doctor who doesn't go to a hospital? What benefit is a doctor who doesn't spend time with the sick? Who looks at other completely healthy people and, and they, they sit somewhere else and say, yeah, we're all doing great. The illustration breaks down a little bit, but you get the point is what Jesus is doing is as these guys sit on their pedestal, Jesus removes the pedestal from underneath their feet. He says, I call not clean people, not righteous people, but sinful people into my kingdom. The question then is, who is righteous and who is sinful? Here's the irony. There is no righteous one. There is no clean person. There is no good Person, There is no good guys and bad guys in God's eyes. There are those who are without sin, and there are those who are with sin. And Jesus' point is crystal clear. We are all sick. 
We are all unrighteous. No matter what we do to clothe ourselves with this idea of approaching some level of spiritual accomplishment, there is nothing that you and I can do with our unclean, unspiritual state. For our sins are against us. And Jesus was aware of this, but not the Pharisees. They were unaware. They did not recognize what was going on. They didn't recognize how far they were from God. The other beautiful thing that he does here is he refers to himself as this physician. And he says he's there to make this, to help the sick, to save the sick, the sinners. Jesus doesn't just sit with people in their guilt and their shame and their miserable lives and be miserable with them. Jesus doesn't offer trite consolation. Jesus doesn't put a band-aid on cancer. Jesus heals. Here, Jesus is a physician who says, I'm here to fix you. I'm here to heal you. I'm here to make you clean. God calls, God makes the lowest to be like the highest. The beautiful thing is that as Jesus is sitting here in this room with these sinners is that they are a lot closer to becoming what the Pharisees think they already are and the Pharisees are a lot further than what they think they are. Everything is turned on its head with the ministry of Jesus God calls them out and says that they that he is there precisely for the reason of healing sinful people, which includes the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, I have God, I'm good to go. Sometimes even we say, I have God, I'm in a good place, I'm feeling pretty good. But what is our effort without God's working? What is our power in us, even with God? It's not our power, it's God's power in us. Every way that Christians have grown closer to God has been by the grace and free gift of God, not by us. We put in effort, sure, but that effort is in vain without the working of God through us. We have nothing to take credit for. We have nothing to hold to and say, I did this. Every part of of every Christian's journey in growing closer to God is an act of God. What do we have? We have nothing. And this includes the Pharisees. And in the next passage, when Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees again, he talks about how he is angry because of their unwillingness to understand. He's hitting his head against a brick wall here. And he's saying, just understand it. Just step into this tax collector's house and sit with me and eat this food with me and learn from me. And you will have the freedom and the righteousness you so earnestly seek for in all the wrong places. 
but it'll be my work, not yours. What does Jesus do with his enemies? He makes them like himself. God calls the lowest and makes them like the highest. They're not completely God. He doesn't make them highest. He makes them like the highest. Notice the distinction is that when we have recognized how far we fall short, when we recognize how much the evil in this world has directed us, and we say, God, that is nothing for me. I'm following you completely. I'm surrendering myself to you. God turns us and transforms in us to be like himself, to be like Jesus. Kids sheet answer here. Kids, this is for your kids sheet. Following Jesus means loving those around us that we don't like or are mean to us and not thinking we are better than them because of our sin. We hear this passage and there's a little bit of the the underdog triumph that we feel where we get to to stick it to the man and the religious elite. Ha! But what do we do with this passage other than fill ourselves with pride, which I think is the opposite desire of this passage? What do we do with that? When I was looking at this and trying to determine points of application, the point I kept coming back to, we were asking a couple of questions here in the book of Mark. We're asking, who is Jesus? We're asking, what is Jesus like? What did he do? And we're asking, what is the kingdom of God like? We're asking, what is the kingdom of God like? And that third question is the one that my mind really gravitated towards when I was thinking of this. Because this is God calling these sinners into his kingdom. This is God calling these despicable people in the eyes of his peoples at the time into his kingdom and saying, you're a part of my kingdom now. So what does this kingdom look like? The first thing it looks like is it looks like showing love First, then from love comes obedience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that, I actually need to look it up here. Oh, it's right here. God's kindness, there at the end, God's kindness is meant to lead you and I to repentance. Notice it says God's kindness. God's love that he shows to us helps us to recognize how much better he is than anything else we have, hold, we have held so dearly to. First comes love, then comes obedience. Jesus didn't go to the tax collector and say, Levi, I'm gonna, I'll hang out with you, I want to have dinner with you later, but, but first you need to know where I stand on tax collecting. You need to know where I stand on this first, and then, and then we, can go and, we can go and hang out. No, he just says, follow me. Give up all that you have. Follow me. Let me show you how great my kingdom is versus that former profession you had as an outcast, as an enemy. Let me show you something better. We Christians fall into this, tra- this trap too often where we fear looking like we dine with sinners. We fear looking like we're doing the wrong thing. And we're meant to feel a little uncomfortable here when God says, follow me first. 
He says, come hang out with me. For us reading it, we have no idea how much Levi changed. We would imagine he changed an incredible amount considering he was an apostle. He received the Holy Spirit. He went off and shared the gospel in other parts of the world and was eventually martyred for his faith according to church tradition. We don't know 100%, but we believe pretty strongly that he did that. Jesus knew that obedience was going to come. First, he shows love. If God is truly in the situation of bringing a soul to him, the obedience will come. God's working in his spirit will come. Our job is godly love. Not an acceptance of sin, but loving in our sin. That's what we do with each other. We love each other with our sinful struggles. We love each other with our imperfections. And we would be fools to not do the same for those around us. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a place full of people the world wants nothing to do with. And some of us want nothing to do with. And accepting the healing power of the kingdom of God through the gospel. Some of the enemies that may be in your mind, some of the enemies that may be in my mind, are precisely the people that will be in God's kingdom. You can hear radical transformational stories of, of, of prisoners or of these, of these different kinds of people. You fill in the blank of what you think is your own bad guy. We hear incredible stories of people coming to faith under incredible circumstances. And the people that we may deem as an enemy are not exempt from God's healing power. The warning is for us to not be on the wrong side of God's working, even in people that we struggle to like or to get along with. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like you and me asking the question, who is my enemy, and going straight to them and building relationships with them. It's easy to live in our isolated Christian bubble. It's very easy to do that. We may deal in one way or the other, but it's very easy to do that. God calls us to go out and to look in this world. And God is in the business of challenging yours and mine's sinful thoughts, which includes the ways we look down on other people. He's in the business of radically changing how we look at the world around us and saying, go, show them the love that I showed you. You didn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. But God's giving it. None of us deserve God's love. We are all the unclean. We have no place of religious or spiritual superiority in our minds. This all sounds well and good, but what does this look like boots on the ground? What does this look like in our own examples? I was looking through different news stories, and I, I, I'm a podcast listener. I like listening to different podcasts. And there was a podcast I, I, I came across from some church. I, I'm not exactly sure where it is, but it's a church. They do a podcast, and they talk about different stories of people in their congregation and the way that God has worked through their lives. And this one podcast I found was the story of a man who was an ex-convict, 
He was the leader of a neo-Nazi white supremacist movement in his community. He had just gotten out of jail, and he was in a dark place. And by God's good grace, he showed up to a church. And at this church, there was a number of different pastors, but one of the pastors that went up to him, one of the people that went up to him and interacted with him was an African-American pastor. You can imagine the tension in that pastor's thoughts as he sees this man who is an enemy. And that's something we don't fully understand, given our context, but we can look at and, and recognize the struggle there. And this pastor eventually met this man and became friends with him and eventually helped, and God used him to, to lead this man to Christ. This man began serving in their church and connecting with the body, and while at some point the law caught up to him and he had to appeal in court, and this pastor decided to be one of his witnesses and testimonies of the fact that this is a changed man. This man was no longer this horrific agent of, of evil that he had seen. This man was new in Christ, was changed by the power of the gospel and the introduction into God's kingdom. And this pastor was the first one on the front lines to say he is a new man. He is a godly man, and he loves his church and his God. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like that. Who is that in your life? Who is that in your life that you think would never change to the power of the gospel? Who is that in your life that you wrestle with and say, is it even worth going to them? Is it even worth trying to talk with them about the good news of Jesus and the transforming power of the gospel? Who is that in your life? that you may not like, and you say they're a lost cause. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like us constantly seeking repentance and forgiveness of our sins, recognizing that the only good work that's happened in you and me has happened by the power of God and nothing else. You and I have no pedestal to stand on, much like the Pharisees. If you're a believer, the Spirit is inside you and is actively working in you, which is a good thing, but that is the Spirit's work in your life and in mine. We have no place of pride. We have no place of self-prescribed superiority. We are tax collectors and sinners desperate for God's grace. And we would be foolish if we thought we made it to a point where we needed God less than anyone else. Cling to him for salvation. Cling to him in repentance and boldly ask the creator of the universe for forgiveness from your sins, Christian or otherwise. We are all in the need of making a habit to ask God for the forgiveness of our sins because we all fall short. God calls the lowest and makes them like the highest. 
All of history has its own accounts of enemies. And all of those enemies may have had a particular reason that they were at the time. All of us have in our minds an enemy. And I'm sure we have reasons for it. God here is challenging us and saying that enemy that you and I struggle with is in the same place that you and I are in without God's grace. May we be messengers of God's grace to the world around us, to the polite or the impolite, to the kind or the rude. May we never abandon that truth because we are the lowest and God is making us like the highest.